Stonehouse Church, my name is Derek, I'm one of the pastors here, and we, as Nathan just read, are in the book of Ephesians, Um, jumping into chapter 3 today, uh, which is a wonderful passage of Paul's um, declaration of the mystery of the gospel and his um, illustrating or articulating of his uh, ministry of that gospel to uh, the Gentiles. So uh, I, I want to start by saying Happy Mother's Day. And uh, for you moms, we've got a gift. It's a beautiful little succulent. And I think because a lot of other moms went and visited their mom, you can probably take like two or three. So if you're a mom, take a handful of succulents. Uh, they're back in the back at a table back there. Um, this day is, uh, is for some people a really great day and for some people a tough day. Uh, mothers and motherhood and mother relationships can all be uh, a diverse amount of things, right? You can have a great mom and love your mom. Uh, this is the place that I'm in. Have a great mom, love my mom. A little bit of pain there because my mom just lost my dad. Uh, and also my mom's how many thousand miles? I never actually, 1,500 miles away, something like that. Uh, so I don't get to see her today other than FaceTime. Thank you, Apple. Um, so uh, there, there, there's always tinges of goods and bads. And so if Mother's Day is tough for you, uh, we as a church want to articulate that we understand that, right? We don't just want to plow through the toughness and say, come on, be happy. Uh, scripture tells us that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so if you've got a tough relationship with a mom and Mother's Day is a stinging day for you, uh, then we sympathize with you and we communicate to you the glorious gospel, the good news of Jesus, in that Jesus uh, went through, endured, and understands suffering so that when we struggle, that when things are hard, that when there is a sting in this world, we know Jesus is right there, that he's with us, that he's close and he's nearby and he understands. And so that's the beauty of the gospel, even in the midst of celebrating or struggling through different holidays. Um, so wanted to mention that and also just say that we, uh, th- we've kind of removed in here at the PAL. Uh, we've got to get some more and more things uh, figured out as far as set up and tear down and time and stuff. We keep starting late because we keep getting our stuff set up late because we keep getting here too late. And we've got to figure out if we're going to adjust time. Uh, those types of things. So thanks for your patience with us as we continue to figure things out back here um, at the PAL. So um, that being said, men's restroom's there, women's restroom's there, kiddos are over there, and we've got a room for moms and babies uh, if you need time with your baby or dads and babies um, to, uh, to take care of them over there. So that's that. Awesome? All right, cool. So we as uh, humans, as people... Um, made in the image of God, there's, there's something about wisdom that's, that's really attractive to us. Um, we pursue wisdom, right? We recognize and honor wisdom, kind of hold it up as, as a value. Um, we love, in many cases, to be uh, those who are wise, right? We, we, we seek afterwards and we want to be someone who is wise, um, and, and Paul in this passage uh, speaks about a wisdom that is not our wisdom, and it is particularly articulated as the manifold wisdom of God in verse 10. Um, and in this we see, and we've seen this already in Ephesians, that there's uh, something about the wisdom of God that is not fully understandable through the wisdom of the world. The scripture leads us to say that sometimes actually the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are are anti one another, actually against one another. Um, Saw a really poignant example of this this week um, through just listening to a couple of different songs. And it's because somebody uh, tweeted out a a story uh, that I guess I hadn't quite fully realized before about uh, Bob Dylan and John Lennon. And so the story is that Bob Dylan, um, in the late 70s, uh, came to Christ. And in his coming to Christ, began to write a little bit of different music. Uh, and in particular, one album was written, and the most popular song on that album, for which he won a Grammy, was called You Gotta Serve Somebody. If you ever listened to this song or not, but he says, I, I don't, basically the song continues to articulate, I don't care who you are. Like, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? And it was a good song and well written and 
he's a great voice and everything. And so uh, he won some awards for the song. But John Lennon hated the song. Fiercely hated the song. So much so that he wrote a response to the song, which was never, I don't think, ever uh, professionally recorded in a studio. I think the only versions you can find out there are uh, kind of raw cut with just basically him hacking on a guitar and using his awesome uh, accent to articulate his hatred towards this song that was written. And in his song, his response is, okay, great, you found Jesus. <laughs> I mean, you say you love Buddha or you say you love Krishna or you say you serve Muhammad. Well, here's what's right in this world. And that is, you gotta serve yourself, sucker. And in very harsh language, like, don't let your kids listen, like really fierce language, he opposes the idea that we as humans ever have to serve anything other than ourselves. And that we actually will not ever find life if we serve anybody else. We will only find life if we serve ourselves. It is, I mean, frankly, it's a demonic song. It's dark and nasty. And it comes out in the way he sings it. And it's just really poignant. And for me, when I, when I encountered that this week and I'm reading through this passage, I'm seeing the, the opposing forces of two wisdoms. The wisdom of this world that says, if you want to make it, if you want to be great, if you want to have anything, go get it. Go be the man. Go serve yourself. Right? Because ain't nobody going to do it for you, in the words of John Lennon. And the wisdom of the scriptures say, actually, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter your education or your job or your position in life, no matter where you were born or where you were raised or, or what name is on the back of your jersey, no matter who you've seen or where you've been, it comes down to this, you will be serving someone. It's either you serve the Lord, creator of heaven and earth, or you essentially serve yourself and in serving yourself, you serve, let's be frank, the devil. And so the wisdom of God is not to be found necessarily in the wisdom of the world. It often can be opposite of the wisdom of the world. And Paul, in particular, highlights how the wisdom of God in what he's done in the gospel is not according to the institutions of man. It's not according to the religions of man. It is according to the work that only God can do. And this wisdom, as he says again and again, is actually uh, a mystery revealed, right? So let's read again these words from Ephesians, and we'll dig in to see this wisdom that Paul points to, how it was hidden and how it's been revealed in Jesus and given to us, the church. So here it is, Ephesians 3, again, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray as we jump in. God, thanks for this day. We do thank you for moms. Uh, we thank you for our moms. And God, whether we have great relationships with them or not, we ask uh, that you would minister to us on this day, uh, that you would help us to see the gift that you've given us um, in our moms. And if that's a strenuous relationship, that God, you would show us the companionship of Jesus who knows what it is 
to suffer and struggle. Um, may we celebrate what you have given. May we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and look forward to uh, the work that you alone can do uh, to bring about life uh, through uh, your people, God. We thank you, God, for an opportunity to gather and to hear your word. Uh, we recognize that we are um, swimming in uh, a massive current of wisdom that, that this world gives us. And often this wisdom of the world uh, overwhelms us and, and pulls us away from uh, the wisdom of God. And so we pray, God, today that you would um, open our hearts like Paul prayed earlier in this book, that, that the uh, eyes of our hearts would, would be enlightened and open, that we might behold uh, the glory of God that's been revealed um, in Jesus. And that through this revelation, we would be transformed uh, not into uh, religious people, uh, not into those who live according to precepts of man, but those who are liberated from the law because of the gospel and who join in the sharing of that good news throughout all the world. Uh, we love you and we thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So back to verse 3 here at the beginning of the passage. Paul talks about this mystery, um, and, and he says that it's, it's, it's a mystery uh, that, that he's been, that's been made known to him by revelation. Uh, verse 4 says that, that it, you can tell that there's insight in his life into this mystery. In verse 5, it says this mystery wasn't known before in other generations, but now uh, it has been revealed to who? To the, the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so the, the beginning here, Paul articulates, which by the way, Paul is like starting and stopping again. So he keeps doing this in this letter. He says, for this reason, I, Paul. And then he stops talking about for this reason. And if you look at verse 14, he actually picks up for this reason. So this entire passage that we're going over today is an in, in insertion of an extra thought. <laughs> right? So Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of, the, of, of Jesus Christ, uh, for, uh, for the sake of you Gentiles. Oh, wait, I need to explain all that. He explains all that. And then verse 14, he's back to, okay, for this reason. And then he actually prays, which is what we'll talk about next week. So he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he says, this is why, basically. This is why I'm a prisoner right now. Uh, this is why Paul's writing this letter while locked up in a Roman prison. So he's, he's saying, I'm locked up for the reason of what I'm about to tell you. And the reason is, is that this mystery has been given to the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, it's important to understand that this mystery uh, that was hidden is something that was revealed once. Right? It's not a mystery that has to keep on uh, getting read. Um, told again and again. It's the same mystery revealed once, and that mystery has been declared for all time, right? So we know the mystery today because the mystery was revealed then at this time to the apostles and prophets. We're not still trying to figure out the mystery. God didn't have two mysteries or three mysteries or a progressive revelation of mystery. There was one mystery to be disclosed. That mystery was revealed in Jesus Christ at one time in one place and has been delivered for all people. Right? We can, we can actually get into trouble by saying it's still a mystery today. No, it's not. The mystery's been revealed. We have to look back to Jesus to see the mystery, and we proclaim clearly that which has been illuminated by the Spirit in hopes that God will continue to illuminate other people to that very same mystery that's been revealed. Right? And I say that because there are progressive revelationists out there who say there are still more things that we have to discover about what God's plan is. No. God's plan reached its fullness in Jesus Christ. It's not changing. We are holding on to the very same truth that Paul held on to in this day, right? And we, we, we have to pay attention, especially in the wisdom of our age, there are people who want to communicate that God's changing again. He's not. There are people who want to communicate, well, the message is different now. It's not. Right? There's actually a very, like, scary popular pastor who just recently said, today Christians 
need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament scriptures. Terrifying. Terrifying. Because the mystery was told for once and delivered for all and is connected to all of God's work in all of history, which the Old Testament reveals to us. And so we don't detach our faith from the Old Testament and progressively move on to something new that God is delivering. He's delivered the same. He's delivering the same thing. Does, does that make sense? I don't want to belabor the point. And so Paul says this was once hidden is now made known. And as we move through these verses, we'll find out, number one, what the mystery of the gospel is. Number two, we'll find out what it means to be a minister of this gospel. And then number three, we will see the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. And so let's begin with what the mystery is. And this is where the clarity is obvious because it takes Paul one verse to tell us what the mystery is. It's that clear. It can be stated simply in verse 6, the mystery is... He doesn't mince words here at all. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Right? And so last week we talked about how we've been brought near to God even though in our sin and brokenness we were far off. We, meaning Gentiles, those who are not of Jewish descent, who did not have uh, the scriptures delivered to us, who did not have a nationality that was identified with God because he had picked us as his nation. But we were far off. We were separated from Christ. We were alienated from God. We were strangers to the promise. We were, we were um, not in the same family of the people who had the covenant of God. And through the work of of Jesus, all of that division, all of that separation, all of that brokenness has been destroyed. And so now we're together. This is the glorious truth, not only together with God, but together with one another, right? God has broken down the wall between us and him because of sin, and he's broken down the wall between us and his people, the Jews, because of the law. He's broken down both barriers. Right? And we've been united. And now, because of the peace we have with God, the divisions between all of the kinds of the people in the world are broken down. Right? So that's what we talked about last week. That's what the, the beauty of this mystery is. And we see in all of Paul's other writings that this is a stumbling block to Jews and that it's folly to Gentiles. Right? Because the Jews thought that to come to God you had to fulfill the law and that that was the way to God because that's how they became God's people was they were given the law. They were, they were given that identity. And so now the gospel proclamation is that the Gentiles can come in to relationship with God. But the Gentiles didn't have the law, the Jews would argue. And so Paul is telling us here that the gospel reveals to us something different. And the folly to the Gentiles is that the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of God. All the things that they thought were what would make them a good person, all the things that they thought would give them a strong identity, that those things are not the things that God has given, but instead God has given us Christ. So, now, this can be a little confusing because sometimes we think that it seems that Paul's saying the mystery is that, is that the Gentiles now can belong to God. We think that that's kind of what Paul's saying. But if you look at all of the Old Testament scripture, especially everything that has to do with the Jewish people, we see that all along it was God's plan to bless the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. It was in our call to worship this morning. Psalm 98 verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Sarah read. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Yes, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. The, the point of Israel was to display the salvation of God so everyone could see it. So that eventually everyone could partake of it. Psalm 22, 27, and 28 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All. Oh, this is the Old Testament saying everybody's going to come, be able to come to God. All of the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So really, all along in the Old Testament, the expectation that salvation can come to even the Gentiles was there. It's been there. 
The prophets have spoken about it. God has revealed that truth. So then, the mystery is not so much that the Gentiles can come to God. That's been fully expected since Abraham was told, you're mine and I'm going to bless everybody because of you. Right? I mean, it's always been. So the mystery is not that the Gentiles can come to God. It is how they can come to God. The mystery is how they can come to God. And look at verse 6 closely. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. That all isn't that mysterious. That's been the hope building in the Old Testament. But what hasn't been seen, what hasn't been clear is how, and what does Paul say the how is? Through the gospel. Three powerful words. Paul says the Gentiles will be able to come to God not through the law, which is the religious understanding of how to come to God, by earning, by trying, by doing right things more than wrong things. Paul doesn't say the Gentiles will come to God through the law. He also doesn't say they're going to come through their human efforts or their own wisdom. Like the Greeks or the Gentiles would say. The way to the, the life and the, 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 the enjoyment of all things is, is just to, to learn enough or grow enough or be good enough in yourself. He doesn't say it's going to come through keeping the law nor come through our human efforts. It's going to come through the gospel. The whole world will be able to come to God because of the gospel. So then it becomes immensely important for us to understand what the gospel is. And the gospel is simply stated, as Paul says it elsewhere, is that it's God's work in Christ to fulfill the law, to absorb our judgment, and to give us his life. Right? Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. So we can insert here that the Gentiles are going to be partakers, a part of the family, join heirs with Jesus because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because it isn't through keeping the law. We know the law was given not so that we could measure ourselves by it and find ourselves to have fully satisfied it, but rather that we can measure ourselves by it and realize that we have a hopeless to keep it. Like, just go through the Ten Commandments and we're screwed, right? Forget the other 613 laws. Just ten. And we're done, right? It's over. We cannot keep the law. So what, what do we need? We need the first part of the gospel. We need a law keeper to keep the law for us. This is the life of Jesus. Sinless, spotless, righteous, always good, never evil. No blemish in his being. One of the most poignant reasons we can point to that fact is that his very own brothers followed him and worshipped him and wrote about that he was God. Right? Call Ryan and Jared and ask them to write a book about me, and it will not conclude he is God. Right? Chris, are you going to write a book about how Jason's God? No. That guy was a jerk when I was a kid. Right? <laughs> Still sometimes is a jerk. Right? Like, that's not how that book is going to end. James? Different story. My, my brother? is God. Right? perfect in righteousness. And so in Jesus' fulfilling of the law, we find out that we can have this spotless record. And so it goes as well with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. In his death, our uh, sin was punished so that our separation with God is gone and that in his resurrection, the life that we cannot attain by ourselves, the life that must be gifted to us by the power of another, is in fact given to us by God. And so this joint heir situation of the Gentiles is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by works, 
so that no man can boast. Now, what's so offensive about this to... I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. That's verses 9 and 10. So this is the mystery. And it was brought about in human history through the person and the work of Jesus. It was always God's plan. It was hidden, right? Even the apostles and prophets that were the uh, prophets that foretold it were, were curious as to exactly how God was going to do it. They didn't, they didn't quite know, Peter says, but they foretold it. And now he says that, that we've seen it. They, they, man, they, they are rejoicing in that reality. So Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, Of this gospel I was made a minister. So he says this gospel, and, and he's speaking here primarily to a Gentile audience in Ephesus. He's saying this, this mystery is that you guys can come in because of the gospel. And this gospel, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so Paul articulates something that's important to understand here. He says this gospel comes, this, this inheritance comes, this belonging comes uh, through grace, through the gospel, and my ministry of this gospel doesn't come because I've earned it. Me writing you this letter that is inspired by God doesn't come because I've deserved it. It doesn't come because I'm special in and of myself. I'm actually the least, he says. And apparently in the Greek there's a play on words here because Paul was of the least as far as the tribes, but he was also small, like little guy. And so apparently he's kind of making fun of himself. He's like, I'm little, right? Like, and I'm from a small tribe, but I'm also undeserving of this great gospel ministry that God's given me. It's really cool to see that he understands that he has no right to declare this gospel, but in fact, this ministry of declaring the gospel has been given to him. In verse 2, he calls it a stewardship of God's grace. That stewardship points itself to obligation, right? We talk about stewardship of resources because we understand that everything we have belongs to God. So therefore, when he says, fund the mission of the church, we understand, okay, well, it's not mine anyway. You get whatever you ask for. I'm just here to steward what you've given me. I'm here to steward my job and honor you with it. I'm here to steward my house and honor you with it. I'm here to steward everything in my life because it's been given to me by God. So Paul says, of this ministry, I'm a steward. It would be unfaithful of Paul to shut his mouth, he says. And it's not because he is great, but rather it's because God is great and he is little. And so we see that this gospel is brought about, that it's proclaimed and it's shared and it's ministered, and that the message is of utter importance, and so also is the means by which the message comes. And so Paul actually says, I'm in other places in the scriptures and here too, that, that I'm undeserving of sharing this. And that the means that, that it coming through him is of vital importance to understand that it comes through a little guy. In fact, the guy who was once the very enemy of the thing which he now proclaims, he recognizes, man, I'm the least, he says, of all God's people. Right? That's not self-deprecation. Paul's not, you know, he's not groveling in ashes and crawling around on his knees. He's just understanding, I, I was fiercely opposed to Christ and his message and his apostles, even to the point of killing them. And what has he done? He's revealed the truth of what they believed to me so that I could become a, a minister. So I could actually proclaim that thing which I was fiercely opposed to. And so the means by which the message is spread is of importance to God as well. And we also have to recognize that this means isn't always wise according to the world, right? Paul actually elaborates in 1 Corinthians about the foolishness uh, that God chooses to use to bring about his wisdom. One of those foolishnesses is the preaching of the gospel. 
the proclamation of what has been done by God through Christ and how that goes out to all the world through what? Through the spoken word of people standing up and saying this is the truth about God. That's how the gospel moves out. Moves out through us having conversations with people to articulate clearly, no, this is the mystery. Not that you can fulfill and reach God by the law in your religion and not that you can just be good enough and ignore God, but that you need Jesus. You can come to God through the gospel. So this preaching and this uh, word and deed that God has given us to spread the gospel is, as, is an important aspect of how that message is articulated. It's one of the ways that we see that it's often anti the world's wisdom. Right? Because it started with the apostles. They were despised. Well, it started with Jesus. Killed. Moved on to his apostles. His apostles disciples. Killed. Despised. Right? We read the second half of Hebrews 11 that many, many, many scores of people suffered, died, lost their families, lost their homes. They never saw God fulfill the thing that was coming, yet they continued to have their hope only in Him. We see again and again the church identified with the suffering and the broken that Jesus says, if you give a cup of water in my name, you're giving it to me. If you visit someone in prison, you're visiting me in prison. If you minister to the least and the lost, you're doing as unto me. The church belongs in the gutters, in the margins. Right? You look all throughout church history and uh, many of the great relief efforts that have ever existed in all the world were, were started because Christians said, let's reach out to those who are suffering. Let's serve. Let's lower ourselves. Why? Because the gospel is of utter importance and the way the gospel comes is of utter importance. Because God lowered himself in Christ Jesus to serve our needs, so therefore we lower ourselves in him to serve the needs of others. Right? And this is a, a work that we all need to grow in as God gives us grace. And so Paul was gifted this ministry. It was a ministry that wasn't his because he was something. It was a ministry that was his because God gave it to him. And it was therefore his obligation to simply steward it. To be faithful to tell others what God had revealed to him. Right? And that's exactly the same thing that we do here week in and week out as we talk about what God has given us. And so this happens in two ways. One, to preach, and then two, to bring to light. Verse 8, he talks about to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then number nine, verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden. Right, And so the preaching of this gospel is a preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ, not a preaching of religious to-dos. Paul rolled in to these different towns and these different areas and he proclaimed Christ and Christ crucified. He says over and over again. He didn't come in to pre preach a task list. All right, guys, straighten up and fly right. Here's your duty now. Be good. That's not what he came. He came proclaiming the riches of Jesus. It was not advice for them on how to live uh, their best life, right? It was not a burden brought to them with guilt and manipulation and pressure it was a free gift delivered to them, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul refused in these places where he um, began these ministries and started these churches and, and discharged the ministry of uh, the work of the ministry to others. In many of the situations, he refused to accept payment for the work he did. He got the, the, the ability to survive from somewhere else so that he could bring the gospel to people free of charge, so to say. Because they were so used to philosophers and people who would come around uh, both manipulating them with their, with their guilt trip and their obligations, but also expecting them uh, to pay for them. And so Paul made sure that he didn't oblige the churches with that. The means by which the gospel was communicated was very important to Paul. And he also said that this Ministry was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So again, we see the mystery hidden language there. It is not that the Gentiles can come to God. It is how. It's the plan of how they were going to come to God. Because God's plan in the ages was to take the two, Jew and Gentile, and make one out of the two. 
right? Now, what's important to understand here is that he's not taking Gentiles and making them Jews. That's not the gospel. Okay? We see this as the gospel began to spread and, and some of the early church was founded mostly in Jerusalem and they had a council and they started to say, well, what happens when, when Gentiles start believing? I mean, do they need to eat like us? Do they need to undergo circumcision like we do? Do they have to have the festivals and the feasts and all the things that, that we do? And they gathered together and they had a, a big, huge discussion about, discussion about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and they concluded, no. Really, probably the only thing they really should do is avoid blood in like animal sacrifices to idols. That was Because that was a really kind of grotesque, demonic type attached thing. So they're like, they probably should avoid that. And then um, they should give money to the poor. That was literally the only two laws that the Jerusalem church said that Gentile believers should follow. They're like, all that other stuff doesn't matter anymore. So the point of the gospel was not to make a Gentile a Jew, right? Nor was the point of the gospel to make a Jew a Gentile. The point was to bring both into Christ and to make the church. That's the result of the proclamation of the gospel. And so in the church, in Paul's day, we see both Jew and Gentile sitting right next to each other. They're different in where they come from. They're different in what they wear. They're different in the foods that they eat. They're different in skin color. They're different in preferred language. They're different in musical styles. But they're one in Christ. And this has dramatic ramifications for us. Right? And for me, when I think Jew-Gentile, like for us, Jew-Gentile might be just super foreign. We're like, whatever, dude. We're not in Israel. We're not anywhere in the Middle East. This is 2,000 years later. That's like, what are you talking about? Are we supposed to go to New York? Like, hang out in a Jewish community and try to understand all this? Right? For me, this is a helpful uh, kind of articulation or illustration of the difference between Jew and Gentile. And, and, and I might step on toes, but for me, it's, it's that today in America... We have a cultural Christianity. And by that I mean you can do things, say things, listen to things, maybe identify with particular philosophies or disagree with other ones. Or, like you can do things. And because Christianity is not under threat in our country, it really is not costly to, to do things you can just kind of generally associate with Christianity. You can actually not even really like Jesus and be a Christian. For those listening, it's air quotes Christian. Be a Christian in our country. You can actually not know a single thing that the Bible really teaches and be a Christian in America. Right? Again, quotes are very important here. It's, it's possible because there is a cultural Christianity. And this is something we must be extremely wary of. And if I was preaching in Texas, this would be the rest of my sermon, right? Because that's cultural Christianity to a T. But we have seeps here and there in, in our town. There's, so there's this cultural Christianity. And then there's the hatred of that, <laughs> right? From a non-religious, atheistic uh, humanistic perspective, right? A, a group of people who say Christianity is terrible and they're one of the reasons why and I'm going to do everything anti them because that's just disgusting, right? And so there, there's kind of just this whole opposite. Now, the point of the gospel being preached in our context is not to make these people these people. Now, we intentionally avoid a myriad of resources that are available to churches in America because, for the most part, there are multiple opportunities to just simply make these people these people. And we could, we could build a church with that 
as our motivation. To simply make these non-cultural Christians, just non-believers, whatever you want to call them, whatever label, we could build an entire ministry, a, a, a seemingly effective one, mind you, around the idea of just getting these people to be like these people, right? We could just train them in the lingo, right? We could just like hype up a bunch of resources, right? We could just wear a bunch of shirts and garb. You know what I mean? We could just promote a bunch of easy, just therapeutic theology that doesn't confront their sin, but just simply says, yeah, just be better our way, you know? We could. We could labor hard and seemingly be successful in just simply trying to get non-cultural Christians to become cultural Christians. That's my comparison to this Jew-Gentile hostility and, and debacle that was going on in the early church. For us, I see that as the translation. But we, because of this truth that Paul's communicating, stand right here in the middle. And we proclaim the point of the gospel is not to make cultural Christians. Not to turn unbelievers into culture, nor is the point of the gospel to turn cultural Christians into these non-believer type people over here just fit in with the world. The point is that everyone gets confronted with this gospel message. Everyone hears the news that they are not the hope for themselves. That they cannot find within human strategy oneness with God. Because both Jew and Gentile thought they had life right and both Jew and Gentile needed confrontation because of the gospel. And that confrontation comes in the loving service of the God-man. Jesus comes and shows us that what we thought of God was wrong, whether we're a cultural Christian or not. Our picture of God is incomplete, and it can only become complete when we look on Jesus. He is the truth of God personified. We don't only get a book, we get a person, we get Jesus. And in every nook and cranny of our lives, the purity and the grace and the compassion and the boldness and the love and the meekness of Jesus confronts us in a loving way, right? It confronts both Jew and Gentile. And the point is that it makes one new man, as Paul said in our last passage, makes the church. The church is the point. And so the gospel is never cultural, right? The gospel isn't change yourself into this kind of cultural mold. The gospel is Jesus can do for you what your culture can never do. It can make you acceptable to God. You see, God is not now, nor has he ever been interested in preserving any one nation or any one culture over and above another. He is making a new people, and those new people are to be in Christ. And this new people, this all-new culture that is made up of all of the kinds of the people, it's the phrase we use around here for all people, all of the kinds of, all the different people, all the different types of the people, this new culture is made up of all those people. And so, therefore, we actually don't leave our ethnicities or our heritages or our histories behind. We walk with them into Christ. Right? So we don't have to alter completely everything about our history and our past and our makeup. This is why the church should be and does become a, a patchwork of multiple ethnicities and histories and backgrounds, all finding unity, not in their histories, not in their languages, not in their ethnicities, like we talked about last week, not those things that we build for ourselves, but rather in Christ who is the one who can unify all. And so this new people, this new one people that God makes is a many tribes people. 
It is a many tongues people. It is a many nations people. It is a people who have set aside the false idols and the broken, uh, uh, broken promises of their earthly allegiances and come to a true God who alone can satisfy. Because in the cultural Christianity world and in the non-believing world, there are idols that say, if you do these things, then you'll be a happy person. But in the gospel, we lay aside the things that our culture tells us to do to be happy, and we realize that we can only find fulfillment in Christ. And so we shed what we should shed, but we hold on to what we should hold on to so that we can continue to be this diverse people that God is building. And this diverse people is called the church, Ephesians 3.10. Paul was given ministry to articulate the mystery of the gospel through preaching so that God would bring about to light for everyone what is the plan of God so that, there's a reason here in verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You guys, the church is the plan of God. We talked about this last week. We talked about this all the time. Big C church universal, small C church local, right? We can say to somebody in the world, hey, uh, look at the church. And they could look in like kind of the, just the air and be like, okay, the, the church... And, and get an all, a whole handful, ten handfuls of assumptions and beliefs about what the church is, right? They can do that through Facebook, Twitter, and news media, or visiting, you know, they, that's what the church is. And they have all sorts of different understandings based on the global church. But when the world encounters the local church, they're given a physical representation of what God has done in Christ. So that when we ask them, once they've encountered the church local, we can say, what is the church? They can say, well, so far as I can tell, it's a bunch of people together that don't belong together. There's differences. There's uniquenesses, yet they all come together under one Christ. They've got their different ideas. Some of them have different ideologies than others, maybe even different skin colors or languages or, 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 or political alliances and whatnot, but yet they, they, still, they all come together under one Christ. It's a marvel when the church is actually the church. And more so than the world looking at it, we see here Paul writes that the church is actually the manifold wisdom of God displayed to things in heaven. That's crazy. Now there's disagreement here in a bunch, amongst the, theology, theology guys. Some say it's angels. Some say it's angels and demons and the devil. I'm not really sure, but the common denominator is at least the angels part. So what Paul seems to be saying here is that God's wisdom and God's glory for us can often be seen in what he's made in this created world when we look around and the world displays the glory of God. But for the angels, the glory of God, the wisdom of God is displayed in what God made through Jesus. We are actually, as the church, we are a treasure cabinet of God's glorious grace to the watching angels. And what results from that is more praise to God. More glory for God. It's astounding. And so this manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities is something that God has planned for all time, and it has happened in the church. The church is central to God's work. It has been, and it will be, Revelation speaks of the church being the bride of Christ and being one day finally perfectly united with its Savior. And that new people, that new society, that new culture, that one people in Christ that is created will be God's people for all eternity. To the praise of his glorious grace. 
So Paul says this mystery comes through the preaching and serving as God brings to light the mystery for the church. And because of this, finally, verse 13, he says, so don't be sad that I'm locked up. He says it makes sense that this wisdom that comes from God is in opposition to much of the wisdom of the world. And so therefore, because I proclaim it, I'm an enemy of the world. So don't worry about it, guys. He's trying to tell the church, hey, guys, because I'm suffering, because I'm locked up, don't think that we're losing. Don't think the gospel's not true. Don't think that what Jesus has done didn't really work. It's actually proof that it is, that it is true, and it has worked, because it is in opposition to the wisdom of this world. The Jews have thrown him in prison. The Romans are surely glad to lock him up because he's proclaiming an allegiance that is different than both of them. And so, guys, when we struggle... Right? Do not lose heart. It makes sense that we would struggle. We're following the narrow way in the midst of a world that says go the wide path. Right? We're pursuing a wisdom that is seen and found only in the, when the Spirit gives us the ability to see it. We can't, the world isn't perceiving that wisdom. So it's folly to them. It makes sense that it feels like we're going against the grain because we are. Because the grain of sinfulness and brokenness and worldliness are still here. The one day they will be completely removed. And on that day, I'm sure Paul's already said it, we'll say it someday. It was all worth it. There's only one thing that lasts. It's what God has made through Jesus. Us, the church. And he's going to enjoy us as his inheritance forever. I love you, and life is filled with important things. But nothing is more important than the ministry of this mysterious plan made alive through the gospel. Nothing. No, the world isn't telling you that. Paul considered it worth it. And I believe one day we will see it so true. Let's pray.